Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16 and the second half of that chapter. Alistair made a, a very good job of reading it. It's quite, quite dense in some ways, quite a lot there. So it'd be very useful for you to have it open before you this evening. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that your word has always been active as long as this world has been. Father, we thank you for that time when your word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Lord, as we come now and gather for a few moments around this account of the very words of Jesus. We pray that you would make your word real and powerfully at work here this evening. Lord, speak to us, we pray, and prepare us by your spirit to take your word as you speak it to us. Amen. We've been spending time in the company of Jesus and his friends on these last Sunday evenings, looking at chapters 13 to 17 of John's gospel. Now, those chapters record the events and the conversation of an evening that Jesus spent with his disciples in the upper room, the last evening before he went to the cross. Now, Jesus talks a number of times in this passage about his leaving He's told his disciples that it's going to be for their good that he's going. He's told them that until he goes, they can't have the Holy Spirit. Now, although he's talked about his leaving, he hasn't really dealt with the immediate crisis that lies ahead for his disciples. The cross, his going in a matter of hours. He hasn't dealt with the fact that in a few hours' time, he will be taken from them. And that for three days' time, until he rises again, he'll appear to be absent. Uh, and that the Spirit won't yet have been given. There'll be a point in time coming now where he will be taken from them, where he'll be gone. And it's to this that Jesus turns his attention in the passage that we have read this evening. By the way, the verses that we're reading this evening bring to an end what Jesus says to his disciples uh, on that night in the upper room. He's going to pray for them, and that's recorded in chapter 17. But these words at the end of chapter 16 mark the end of what Jesus says to his disciples. And in a sense, it's quite appropriate that Jesus should use these last words to tell them what they might expect in these next few days that lie ahead, how they should expect to experience his death. Now, I don't know if this will have dawned on anyone, but if you're particularly observant, you might have noticed something about the timing of this series. I've chosen to preach through these chapters of John's gospel as we approach Easter. We'll finish this series uh, on the Sunday before Palm Sunday, 
So as we've been working our way through Jesus' teaching with his disciples, we've been counting down uh, towards Palm Sunday, towards Good Friday, and towards Easter Sunday himself. We have been keeping company with Jesus and his disciples. And I hope that as we've been doing that, we have been prepared uh, as we move once more towards that time in the year when we remember Jesus' death and his resurrection. I hope that God has, has used this, uh, this part of his word, to bless you in this Lent season. Now, to help you focus our minds as we move through this passage, let me point out four stages that Jesus predicts the disciples will go through in terms of his death. Now, I, I need to say something about this. In a very real sense, what Jesus says to the disciples here is entirely unique to the situation that's facing them. He's talking about his death that lies a few hours ahead and how it's going to, to, to feel to them. So in one sense, as I was preparing this, and even as I preach it here this evening, it's not the easiest passage in God's word for me to apply directly to your life or mine. None of us are going to live through the days that the disciples faced. But in another sense, their experiences, and I hope I can show that on the way through, uh, there's something here that's universal for all who would follow Jesus Christ. Let's, let's move through the passage here very quickly then. The first stage for the disciples, and it's already there at the very outset of the passage, is confusion. In verse 16, Jesus has said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me. And we see that that is enough to confuse the disciples. Look at verse 17. Some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Now, I don't want to blame the disciples this evening for their confusion. I doubt very much that I would have understood this or that you would have understood what Jesus was saying. I think what's happened here for the disciples is that they're confused about different returns that Jesus has alluded to. Jesus has talked three times about different aspects of his return. Jesus, first of all, is going to return from the grave. If you read the Gospels, you'll find Jesus talking about that. But Jesus, secondly, returns when his spirit falls on his disciples, when by his spirit he returns to them. And then thirdly, of course, Jesus returns at the end of time when he comes as the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus spoke about all three of those during his ministry. And I, for one, am not surprised that there's a little bit of confusion here for the disciples. Now, if, if you think I've maybe read too much into this, I think you can see their muddled thinking here in verse 17. The disciples are talking here about Jesus' disappearance for a little time. And they're talking about his return to the Father and they're talking about those two in one breath. If they think those two absences of Jesus are one and the same thing, 
then, of course, they're confused. Whenever Jesus talks about being absent for a little time, he's talking about the three days he'll be in the grave. When he talks about his return to the Father, he's talking about his ascension, a full 40 days down the line. So there is confusion here. Friends, hindsight is a wonderful thing, and I think I'm learning to be a a bit more forgiving of the foolishness of the disciples as I see it time and time again in the Gospels. Um, It seems uh, as I get older, I'm willing to identify more and more and more with the mistakes that they make and the misreadings that they make uh, of Jesus and his teaching. In a little while, Jesus says, you will see me me no more. He's he's basically saying, in a matter of hours, I'll be gone. And then after a little while, you will see me. That is after three days or so, you'll see me again because I'll rise from the grave. That's easy for us to understand living on this side of the cross. But I suspect it was much more difficult for the disciples to understand in that upper room on that evening. Friends, I am beginning, as I say, to find some real encouragement uh, with this confusion that we see with the disciples. It turns out I'm not the only one who gets confused from time to time about God and his work in this world. As I've been a Christian, I am grateful to God. I I do believe that I've, I've learned quite a bit But although God has taught me much, there's so much that I still don't understand. And it seems to me that there's a a humility that probably should be growing in us as we learn more of God and his ways in this world. If you've been a believer for a fortnight or for 40 years, you still have more than you can ever imagine to learn of the work of God in this world. Friends, I suspect that we're still confused. The first stage for the disciples will be their confusion. The second stage for the disciples as they experience Jesus' death will be grieving. Jesus predicts that in verse 20. But he promises immediately that their grieving will turn to joy. What Jesus says in verse 20 and following is very interesting, particularly in the light of verse 19. You see, in verse 19... We're told that Jesus knows the disciples are dying to ask him a question. Jesus, what do you mean when you say, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then in a little while you'll see me? Jesus knows their question, but he doesn't answer it, at least not directly. Instead, he tells them what he knows they need to hear. You see, they think, and this is often the way with the disciples, They think their biggest need is to understand what's going on here. But their biggest need is to know that they are safe and secure in God's keeping. Jesus doesn't bother to tell them what they think they need to hear. Instead, he gives them what they really need. Friends, I'll tell you something. I'm I'm glad 
that Jesus gives me the things that I need, that he knows that I need, rather than the things that I think that I need. You see, I'm like everyone else here this evening. I think I need to be happy. I think I need to be healthy. And if God can throw in wealth and success and popularity and comfort, well, all the better. Those are the kinds of things that I think I need. Jesus doesn't give me all of those things, at at least not all the time. Instead, he gives me things that he knows I need. Think with me for a second of the things that Jesus gives me and gives you. He forgives my sin. If there's one thing I need, I need that. He gives me a spirit. He gives me brothers and sisters to walk along this life with Jesus. And he loves me to the end. Friend, thank God that he ignores sometimes our desires and those things that we think we need and that he gives us instead those things that he knows we need. Notice another thing here in the second half of verse 20 about this grief. Jesus tells the disciples, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. The grief isn't taken away. The grief isn't replaced with joy. Incredibly, their grief turns to joy. And Jesus uses an analogy at this point. There are lots of women here this evening, and many of you I know have experienced childbirth, so I'm not even going to go there as as people say, I'm I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to make that most male of mistakes. But the point of Jesus' analogy, the very thing that causes the woman's pain, namely the delivering of the child, is the cause of her deep, deep joy. And it's going to be the same, he says, for these disciples. The very thing that's going to bring them such grief, the death of their Savior and their friend, on the cross is going to become the cause of their deep and life-changing joy. Friends, I said at the outset, a lot of what Jesus is saying in this passage doesn't translate very directly because it's so specific to the disciples at this moment. But it's still true to say that often God works wonderfully to take our grief our very grief, and to change it to joy. I couldn't help but think in that of of this congregation as I was preparing to to share with you this evening. These days, here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, there's a very real sense in which our grief is being turned to joy. For years, many of us here have watched as our our church has declined. Uh, We have lived through times of a very real discouragement. But now we're experiencing wonderful times of blessing as God has chosen once more to work here and to be powerfully present among us. God has taken the the very grief 
I believe, that's been at the heart of this congregation. And he's changed it into a joy. And do you know who I think is experiencing this joy the most? It's the, the people who have grieved the most, who felt the most hurt, the most sorrow, as they, they saw their fellowship dwindle right before their eyes. Those people who felt that hurt and that pain, who opened their hearts to God without ceasing. And now God has turned their, their grief into joy. Friends, there are other ways in which God does that. He does that in our own lives. But he's done that wonderfully for us here as a congregation. And I, I just want to, to stop in the middle of what we're saying here this evening and give him the glory for that. That's the second stage for the disciples. Their grief turns to joy. Although the followers of Jesus and we as well, are often confused about this life that Jesus calls us to. It's not God's will for us that we be confused forever. So that's the third stage that Jesus promises to the disciples, that their confusion over his death will come to an end. Look at verse 23. Jesus promises the disciples a day when you will no longer ask me for anything. The verb that Jesus uses here is a verb that means to ask a question rather than to ask for something. So what he's saying is, a time's coming when you won't ask me any more questions about what's going on here because all the answers will be made clear to you. Now, the day that Jesus is talking about here is the time whenever he's risen from the dead and when he's given the disciples his spirit, who's going to teach them all truth. We thought about that in previous studies in these passages. The disciples no longer need to ask Jesus the kind of questions that they've been asking this evening, because everything's going to be made clear. Once they've gone through that third stage of being lifted out of their confusion, the fourth stage for the disciples is that they're going to discover that the Father loves them. Look at chapter, look at verse 23b. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you haven't asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. I said a moment ago, in the first half of that verse, Jesus used a verb which meant to ask a question. Now in the second half, he's using the different verb, which means to ask for something. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you ask the Father for something in my name, the Father will give it to you. Now, this is interesting because it picks up on something that we have talked about in our previous sermons. There's a way of understanding verse 23 that we, we just want to steer entirely clear of this evening. There's a danger of stressing prayer in Jesus' name. And the danger is that we think that, that we need to, to use Jesus' name as an abracadabra, as a, as a magic phrase 
to get what we want from the Father. It's as though the Father's a miserable type who doesn't really like us, doesn't really want to give us things, but he can be forced to respond if only we name drop Jesus. Jesus himself challenges that view of the Father. Look at verse 26. In that day you'll ask in my name. I'm not saying that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. Jesus wants his disciples to understand you don't have to beg the Father to give you things. You don't have to beg the Father to answer your prayers. Jesus answers your prayers because he loves you. If you love Jesus, then Jesus' Father loves you. Friends, look with me at verse 27. Look long and look hard. If you love Jesus Christ this evening, then hear him saying these words to you. The Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. Friends, I, I said this a week or two ago. I can't remember when. I think this is, this is a big one. This is one of our biggest problems. To know that the Father loves us. I think there are some of us who have grown up in Bible-believing families, in Bible-teaching churches, who have as, as orthodox and conservative a biblical faith as, as you could find, but they don't know that God loves them. Do you understand that, that God not only knows of your existence, He not only tolerates you. He not only puts up with you. And certainly not not this evening. He not only just takes you on board because of Jesus. The Father loves you. The fundamental person in the universe. The Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves you. If we could take this on board, it would change everything for all of us. You know what happens when you begin to understand and believe that God loves you? You love other people because you know you're okay. You know you're loved. You can give of yourself because you know that that nothing better, that there is nothing better than this. God loves you. I don't think we can love each other 
I don't think we can live out this biblical injunction until we know this. Until we know that God loves us. The Father himself loves you. That was the fourth stage in the process for these disciples, and it's another glorious aspect of discipleship for us as we follow Jesus. Let me summarize what we've said here this evening, and then we'll close. As he prepares for the cross, Jesus predicts four stages that his disciples will go through. They're already confused. They're already at stage one. Soon their confusion will give way to grief, but that grief will turn to joy. Soon their confusion will disappear as Jesus rises from the dead and as the Spirit comes. And finally, they're going to move on to a new experience of the Father and to know his love. The remaining verses here are interesting because the disciples claim that they have got it. We know what you're talking about, Jesus. Look at verse 29. Now you're speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and we do not need to, and you don't need to ask anyone, sorry, you don't need anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe that you come from God. Their answer looks great on paper. Jesus, we know what you're talking about, but actually they're jumping the gun. Jesus points out their lack of understanding in his reply. Look at verse 31. A time is coming when you'll be scattered, each one of you to his own home. You'll all leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Jesus points out how little these disciples really understand. You're standing here tonight before me and you say you understand. Fellas, in a few hours... You're going to do a runner. You're going to leave me. You don't yet understand. Jesus' Jesus' teaching ministry with his disciples pretty much ends with these verses. And certainly his teaching in this, uh, this evening in the upper room ends. And the disciples still don't get it. They still don't understand. They're still not prepared to to walk in the way that Jesus calls them to. But the wonderful glory of all of this is that these men, these men in this room who have heard so much and seen so much of Jesus, who still don't get it, are the ones whom God is going to use to build a church that's going to change the world. Friends, we're going to leave here tonight and there's a lot we still don't get. But be encouraged. Look, look, at, look at Jesus' final, final words in this chapter. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Everything that Jesus has said in these chapters 
is all about the trouble that lies ahead. He's going to be crucified. They're going to be left without their master and their friend. The trouble is upon them. He told them in the opening verse of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Now at the very end of chapter 16, he's saying the same thing. Trouble's coming. In this world, you'll have trouble. But do not fear. I have overcome the world. Friends, whatever trouble we face, in the name of Jesus Christ, whatever situations we walk into in his name, we do not fear because he already has overcome. We walk in this world in the name of the King. Let's pray.